the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce today's guest, just want to uh, you know, bet, grovel at your feet for uh, Patreon subscriptions. Uh, you can find me at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, which is, of course, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Uh, I'm just a, a lowly, a soul dude running this show by myself and... Uh, with all the economic uncertainty, if you feel so inclined, uh, any any subscribers would be appreciated. But I'm I'm super excited. This is a, a long time coming. Uh, today's guest is the 2018 Homeland Security Com- Comedian of the Year, host of the Gothic, uh, Gothic Socialist Podcast, Poddam America. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jake Flores. Hey, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's good to be here. This is a long time coming. I'm glad we're finally doing this. I know I uh, I pushed it out a few times because uh, I think the first time we tried to record was the day after my birthday, which was a very yeah. stupid <laughs> idea on my part. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, it was one of the all-time hangovers of my life. So I'm glad we had time to properly sharpen our mind brains for this and uh, get into what we're going to get into today. That's right. Just scraping the gray matter against the floor, sharpening it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, before we jump into kind of... So we're going to talk about Lacan today, and I think in particular his theory of desire and kind of like corollary stuff surrounding that topic. But uh, Jake, I'm kind of interested. You are you are from Texas originally, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. So did you, did you grow up in Austin or did surrounding area or... No. That, what was that like? Uh, I grew up in Southwest Houston, Texas, in okay. a neighborhood called A Leaf, which oh, yeah, you can yeah. hear about in the music of Maxo Cream. If anyone's into that guy, um, that guy lived on like my old street, so it's really fun to listen to his shit because he's oh, nice. he just talks about like bisonette and shit. Um, but I, uh, yeah, so I was kind of uh, living over there, kind of a city kid. Fucking went to Austin to go to UT and to be a you know Austin shithead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's where I absorbed a lot of the DNA that is uh, clearly on display. And I guess you can't see me. This is a podcast, but you know, I'm a, I'm a fucking hipster or whatever, you know? Um, <laughs> so I lived in Austin for a long time though. Yeah. Like my twenties basically. Right on. Yeah. So I grew up in like a, a pretty small town outside of Austin on a cattle ranch, believe it or not. Oh, cool. So, Which yeah. one? Uh, let's see. Have you ever heard, heard of a town? You might've heard of Flatonia, Texas. <laughs> it's it's on I ten. Okay, it's like right in between. It's like almost literally to the mile in between San Antonio and Houston. Oh yeah, I think I vaguely remember that from like just road signs and shit. Yeah. Wow, weird. Oh, that makes sense as to why you would become a person who has nothing <laughs> to do but read tons and tons of theory. But yeah, my uh, I grew up kind of like 
evangelical and my parents and grandparents were like right wingers and all that stuff. But I think the open spaces kind of really contributed to, I don't know, maybe <laughs> sharpening my imagination or something like that. Cause I always had kind of like a super vivid imagination, you know, just coming up with shit to do as a kid yeah. in the middle of nowhere. You know what that kind of reminds me of? Uh, not to, I don't know, don't take this the wrong way or whatever, but I just, I was on tour, like, I don't know, last, uh, fucking one of the last times I went out and I was somewhere in the Southwest in like, uh, in like a real rural part of Texas, actually, or New Mexico, I can't, it's that part of the country. And, uh, I stopped at a gas station and this guy working at the gas station, uh, looked at me cause I was wearing a t-shirt with like a, like a Baphomet on it. And it said like, um, the devil or something on it. And he was like, <laughs> You know, that's technically a Baphomet. And he started to go off about all this encyclopedic knowledge that he had about like what different types of satanic imagery and shit. And I was just like, yeah, this makes sense. Like <laughs> you uh, have to sit in this booth all day. I get why how you would end up uh, just sort of like reading tons and tons of shit that the rest of us maybe uh, are going to miss out on in our stupid, chaotic, kinetic lives. And I respected it a lot. I, I feel too, like that right now because of quarantine. Like right. I'm actually a yeah, real no sick part of me is very excited about this because uh, there's suddenly time to learn things that I'm too undisciplined to take in usually. Yeah, same. Uh, I'm kind of curious, like how did you make the transition? Because you're, you're in Brooklyn. What's that tra transition like? Because I love, I mean, I'm like a city guy more so than country, even though like I'm at home like in the country. I, like I shoot guns and I do all that kind of shit and like, I love being out there, but as far as like living there permanently, not really my vibe. So I'm kind of curious, like how that adjustment went for you and like, yeah, well, I mean, part of it was, uh, you know, I spent my twenties, uh, doing stand up and like learning, you know, a couple of different survival skills and trades and stuff like that. And, um, had dropped out of college sort of to, to do all this shit I did in my 20s. And I think I was approaching my 30s and was like in, in a space where I thought, all right, I should go attempt to uh, turn this into a job if I can. Um, and I, I think that uh, like, at least it was my understanding at the time. And it maybe it was a little bit more true before things really got more democratized via the internet and social media. But, you know, it's my understanding that like if you want to actually try to become something like a screenwriter, for example, you got to go to New York or LA. And, um, that was something I, I wanted to do at the time. Like I, I really wanted to buy into the system and, uh, <laughs> and then I moved here. And when I moved here, I, you know, uh, I saved up all my money and then threw myself into the situation of uh, coming and landing in a fucking squat and then, you know, just going as hard as at New York as I could. And, uh, that was not a situation where there was really much of an escape cord. So I kind of got stuck here <laughs> and, um, you know, and then, uh, really over the years, I didn't mind it. I ended up, I think really taking to it because of all the, um, the way this, that New York is set up is like, there are problems with it, obviously, but there are parts of it that, that are like, you know, very, uh, attractive to, you know, like bohemian types and also like, um, left leaning types because there's just a lot of social, like, yeah. uh, um, what do you call it? Programs and shit. There's fucking trains. Like there are, this is like a, you know, like Paris or something. It's like a, right. yeah, the type it's like of society. The only real city. 
in in the country, to be honest. Yeah, it's a type of city we are trying to like make everywhere else kind of like. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I ended up really liking living here and then thinking, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, this is a good base of operations for touring and stuff like that. And uh, I also just for plain old, I, I just like it. Um, and then my relationship with uh, the system, though, that I was describing, the entertainment industry machine changed a lot. And I went from uh, trying to buy into it to uh, I, I, I very much like analyzing it and criticizing it and dare I say attacking it sometimes. Um, and that's, you know, that's a thing you can do from within the belly of the beast. Uh, so that's kind of how I ended up where I am. Right on. Yeah, I kind of, that's somewhat why I started the podcast. I was kind of like, I graduated into like 2009. So like the nadir of the economy. And I was like, at the time, you know, kind of the shit really hadn't hit the fan until like, by the time I had graduated and, uh, you know, I had aspirations of like working in the film industry, kind of same thing, directing movies, whatever, and all that sort of fell through. And so, like, I didn't have an outlet for years and years and years. And finally, I was like, fuck it. I'll just do a podcast. I heard, like, Rogan and stuff. And I was like, man, I, I could fucking do that. I could do that way better. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of scratches that same itch of, like, <laughs> having a project and, like, you know, something that I can create. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, not to to uh, force this comparison too hard, but the... The thing where you hear, you know, the big podcasts and then you realize you could do something like that and then you form it into something new is, uh, if I understand correctly, somewhat related to the concept of post-structuralism in that it begs the question, you know, are we standing on the shoulders of giants? Am I uh, standing on Joe Rogan's shoulder when I make my podcast <laughs> or are we, yeah. uh, you know, doing something that is laterally related like uh, we're just another branch in the Deleuzian rhizome or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, I would argue that, but I've been heavy into him lately, so who the fuck knows? Oh, yeah, same. Uh, not going to lie, though. I did, like, I think the Rogan model, like, kind of the open conversation is is what I go for, to be honest. Like, trying to match that kind of that vibe to the pod rather than being, like, super, like, interview heavy or, like, even being super, like, you know, focusing on riffing and shit like that. I like to kind of, like, walk that razor's edge of like serious yet entertaining enough to grip yeah. people. You know, that's interesting you bring that up. I've been thinking a lot lately about how I uh, I kind of had this similar jumping off point because I was really into Duncan Trussell's podcast, who is one of those Rogan <laughs> types, just because yeah, he... Uh, for sure. He... <laughs> I really like what he does because he, you know, started that shit in a time when every podcast was just like flat out just interviews and the fact that he put work into making it sound cool and like be a piece of art itself and then also have like those little sermons and stuff I thought was really interesting. Um, so I try sometimes, but I don't think I'll right. ever reach uh, the Skrillex of podcasting level that he's doing. <laughs> nice. Um, so we'll go ahead and we'll jump into the the enigma, the mystique of Lacan himself so I shared with Jake a um, a graphic that is from Guattari's Machinic Unconscious, which is kind of like a collection of, of writings uh, Felix Guattari did. And I think this is a really good kind of, actually, this is a super useful visual, I think, for kind of encapsulating its uh, Lacan as a whole. And so just looking at this graphic, it's essentially it's a triangle and it's got this kind of like spiral 
pattern in the middle, which is labeled subjective black holes, um, which is a good way to, like, that really maps well onto Lacan's concept of desire, which is focused on this lack at the heart of the of the subject. So, and when I say subject, I mean, like, anyone who is, you know, a being that speaks, like, they have a subject of lack. There's this gap between... Um, to be more technical, signifiers and signifieds that creates this 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 lack, which is kind of like actually synonymous with desire. They're kind of interchangeable in a sense. And I'll post this in the show notes too, but I think this is a really good visual. Like if you wanted to sum up Lacan, this graphic from Watari is like is perfect. This graphic looks like it would make a really cool tattoo. It looks very Illuminati-ish, <laughs> yeah. and it also is very funny to me because I think when I when when I first looked at this, it looked like complete gobbledygook, and then after doing the reading, yeah. I went, "Oh wow, all these things now came into focus and make sense." It's very funny because philosophy is sometimes uh, you know <laughs> indecipherable like that. Oh yeah, and Lacan in particular, and. Of course, Deleuze and Watari as well. My favorite part is the castrated binary phallus. Like, that's just a good tagline. <laughs> yeah. It's like re- real castrated binary phallus hours today on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but let's, we'll start off. There's like Lacan to me is, I don't know. He's one of the most fascinating thinkers, one of the most creative thinkers. Even if you think he's a charlatan, I think he still has like, some value as just like a pure thinker, whether you think his theories are kind of bullshit or not. Cause like, you know, people like Chomsky said he was a very self-aware charlatan. So, so fuck Chomsky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is, uh, working on the, you know, is expanding on Freud and Freud is someone who is what occupies that space in, uh, philosophy and psychology. Right. Because he, he, Everyone hates him, and yet everyone wouldn't exist without him, kind of, I think, is where a lot of modern thinkers come from. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you got to be a little skeptical about the kind of um, artistic license he's taking with some of his philosophy. Uh, some of it, it gets far away from being really arguably, you know, based on any anchor that we can really prove to be material and objective. But... Um, I don't know with, you know, like with Freud, there is some really interesting shit here that, uh, you know, definitely when you read it, I, it doesn't sound not like anything you've ever experienced in your own mind, you know? Oh yeah. Some of it maps like perfectly. I mean, I think you as a comedian, like you would totally get this idea, like a real great example. And this is maybe like the, the through line of the whole podcast will be like your desire as a comedian is like recognition and the love of the audience or the other. Right. And so the vehicle for that is the joke, but like you're trying to tell the joke, but the joke isn't like telling the good joke in itself is not your desire. Right. That's kind of like the object, ah, which is like the packaging of that desire. Yeah, man, that's, that no, that's so good. I didn't even think about that, but that's like, uh, that's a really perfect model for explaining it because, um, people always think that comedians do what they do, like kind of altruistically. Like it's a dumb interview question you get all the time is like, you know, why do you like to make people laugh? And like the, you know, the answer to that is I don't, I like 
getting the feeling of that killing. Feeling. Yeah. You know, I like the endorphins I get from performing. Uh, the people, <laughs> they're just one part of the, the chain or the mechanism or whatever in place that gets me that feeling, which I guess under the laconic model would be understood as like the, uh, the need, like the lizard brain just feeling I get from performing. Um, and then, yeah, that the need is like ultimately the, that desire for love or recognition from the audience or like the other that is outside of you and you get gratification by giving them like you're trying to figure out what the other wants because pleasing the other is what gives you satisfaction. Yeah, it does. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <hell> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the same thing is true of, of posting and I've, I'm, uh, I mean, you probably noticed from following me that I post like fucking like a madman, like 50 to a hundred times a day. Yeah. And it's the, sa- it's the same mechanism. It's like, um, this constant trying to fill that void, that lack at the heart of subjectivity with this recognition by the other and that kind of acknowledgement that, Hey, I'm like, I think maybe even to, this is not strictly Lacanian, but I think that recognition helps kind of cons- like constitute your subjectivity and like it's almost like this other concept um the looking glass self which is i believe george herbert mead and it was kind of like we bounce we kind of like throw out these signals to other social beings when we're kind of like bouncing off okay like who am i based on how people respond to my actions and significations you know obviously falls into that yeah yeah for sure um where should we where should we start here? I'm kind of getting uh, a little <laughs> scattered, and I don't want to lose anything. Oh no, we start. I mean, I could tell some of these funny Lacan anecdotes about how he liked to speed and never wanted to stop at red lights, and <laughs> even if he was like in the passenger seat, would get pissed off if you stopped at red lights and get out of the car and walk to the next corner and make you pick them up and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. That I think is really insane. That sh- the, <laughs> one thing that I found really interesting <laughs> in reading about him was that how he defined everyone's um, particular, like, psychosis or whatever by uh, the way that you deal with the problem of crossing the street. Like, um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, yeah, it was like the paranoic attempt. Yeah. It was like the paranoic, the anxiety. The... The what was it? The hysterical is person yeah. that uh, waits forever. So like the OCD type person is a person who waits uh, and enti- like just obsessively for way too long until they're absolutely sure they can cross the street. And then the hysteric was the person that uh, only feels comfortable when other people are crossing the street, which is like such a weird thing to zero <laughs> in on because like I know I've done that too. I know it totally makes, especially in New York. Yeah. Right? I feel like that's. Especially you coming from Texas, that I noticed that's one thing when I'm like, oh, okay, whenever the herd moves, then it's okay to move. Well, that's funny, though, because New York is like the, the norms are a little bit different. So if you do look at everything through yeah. this model, then we get further into the pervert acknowledges that he should cross at the light, but disavows the law and jaywalks. That's like every that's normal in New York. So it's normal to be what Lacan would describe as a pervert. A pervert and then <laughs> furthermore, the psychotic acts as if there is no law um, because there has been a foreclosure of the paternal function. Well, we'll get into the Oedipus stuff, I'm sure. Um acts as if there's no law and then crosses without paying attention to whether there is traffic, which is actually like the ultimate New Yorker, I guess, is I'm walking here, you know? Yeah. 
that that also reminds me of uh, like in Fight Club, Marlis Singer. Remember, there's like a scene where she just like starts walking across the street, and fucking cars are bleeding by, but she just continues onward. Yeah, she said the uh, what's her face when she filmed that said that her jewelry was actually bouncing off of taxi cabs. So she did it method style. Uh, let's see. There's some other funny shit about Lacan. Um, like another good story is so he. Ended up marrying George Bataille's wife eventually, but like it was kind of a like a secret among like the families. Like they didn't kind of like the kids didn't know and shit. So one day, like Lacan's first family is like I think his daughter or something is on the street, and Lacan drives by in a car with this little girl in the car, and like she waves and like yells, "Hey, daddy, daddy!" But Lacan just like speeds <laughs> off, and that's kind of like how I guess it came to a head that. He had this whole other family and, and oh, shit wow. like that, which is pretty nuts too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This all makes sense. He also, um, so he was, let's see, Watari was a student of his. And I think that Watari paid Lacan to let Watari drive for him, which is goes to show you what kind of prick Lacan Watari was. paid Lacan to let Watari drive for him. Yeah, be like, I'm, okay, I'm Lacan, so you're going to pay me yeah, to be I my see. driver. <laughs> uh, yeah, this all makes sense as to why he was such a Freudian. He's uh, seeing all the perverted then, uh, stuff within himself, you know, trying to figure out where it comes from. And then... So, yeah, and then Deleuze and Watari, whenever they did Anti-Oedipus, which is obviously, like, basically calling out Lacan's whole <laughs> cool whole project. Uh, so, Watari, like, brings this work to him, and Lacan basically tries to drum him out of the whole, like, academy and, and blackball him and, and keep him from, like, progressing because he was so pissed yeah. off about it. It's <laughs> also really funny. Yeah, okay, I need to, like... This is, I need to read more of Lacan's work to contextualize what uh, what Anti-Oedipus is really talking about. Because um, I was thinking of it more when I was reading about Anti-Oedipus as the reaction to Freud himself. But now this makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is in a way, because Lacan is not necessarily rejecting Freud entirely. He's kind of taking uh, Freud and, and putting kind of a new spin on him. And what he's doing that through is this kind of new model of linguistics or semiotics that there's a, um, a Swiss linguist named Ferdinand de Saussure that had this whole theory about signifiers and signifieds and this relationship between basically the words that we speak and the object or the concept that we're trying to express with that, like literal, either the spoken sounds that are coming out of our mouth or the written like marks that we're making. Yeah. That part of this was really interesting to me. And that there was a quote that kept coming up, uh, which is that uh, about being misunderstood. Like it's inevitable. Everyone who speaks is uh, going to be misunderstood. I have it written down somewhere, but I think uh, what was interesting to me about it was the idea that, yeah, so there's this, um, I guess what's interesting about economy is he keeps, keeps alluding to something that is unarticulatable, um, like a big, big, you know, massive 
realm within you and then the words using to um not only express but uh like create you know themselves uh an extension of these you know needs and and stuff like that and then like there's uh this negative space where when you use a word to express um this thing from within then it you know it it enters the realm of like symbols so it's in a word and then it hits the other person and the other person uh, is only able to receive some of the transmission of what's coming from within you. Then there's right. this like cutting room floor, like referred to as kind of the real or whatever, where like there still is meaning, but it's it's lost in the synapse of me saying I want this thing to you, uh, and then you understanding. Like when I said sandwich, I'm you know I I'm articulating a specific concept, but. Um, whatever the fuck in my body that is hungry is still like, you know, not quite able to express the entirety of what I want that the real space is yeah. really fucking interesting to me. Yeah. And I think just to kind of like even back up to like more basically, I think this like looking at sisters signifier versus signified is a really like, that's a very basic starting point for any of the post-structuralist thinkers are going to be tapping into this. So like Derrida, for example, especially is going to be somebody that's going to be dis discussing that. I mean, even Deleuze, Watari, they're like building a more, I think, sophisticated theory, but it's still like tapping into this kind of basic aspect of language or semiotics. I mean, Foucault is influenced by really like almost all of uh, post-structuralism and even stru structuralism too, because you have like uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, who was the structural anthropologist and uh, I forget, there's maybe even another one. Oh, yeah, you have uh, Altice as well. So those are like the structural Marxists that are kind of this bridging the gap sort of between Marx, Saussure, and then like Lacan and, and so on, like the rest of the kind of post-structuralist people that follow um, Roland, Roland Barthes as well are kind of like this st structuralist gang of, of cats that were sort of – then like once structuralism kind of becomes a thing – Derrida comes in and kind of like wipes it out with the, and that's where post-structuralism starts. Yeah. Um, I found the quote. It is as soon as we speak, we are misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because, so I think you, it's good to understand this in the contrast to idealism through Plato, right? So Plato's notion of language, or maybe even Aristotle too. It's like their notion of language is, okay, there is the concept of chair or horse or whatever the fuck is, exists independently of the actual material object itself. The material object that you're viewing and trying to signify with a sound or a word um, is sort of a degraded form of this like ideal form of those concepts that exist outside of human interaction entirely. Like those universal forms transcend human experience they're out there outside of us eternally, like they don't change. And so this is what's so important about this is, is a kind of reversal of that model. It's saying, no, 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 there is no meaning that exists outside of this kind of closed system of language that is constructed primarily as a system of difference. Like there's, there's kind of a negative context for everything linguistically, because let's say, I mean, I think the common thing is like a chair is not a chair 
a chair is a chair because it's not a uh, a desk, right. for example, right? So there's this kind of closed system of meaning that's all relational, but there's not like that gap between that and the quote unquote real. That's where that's the space where lack and desire emanate from. Okay, so help me understand this one more time. The the um, sure the Plato thing is uh, forms are existence or they are eternal um and uh so the way we interact with them is that we are only like attempting to sort of define them for our own uses or something and then the the post-structural way of looking at this is that it um forms are defined by the negative so what like a chair is a chair not because it's an eternal the chair is just a thing that's always existed outside of humans. It's because we define it by with this negative tool of it's, it's not a desk. It's not another thing. It's all, it's like, it's a shadow. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Sort of. You're, you're pretty close. Um, it's so I think the good distinction to make is, so let's say you look at a chair, the chair doesn't have an essence that requires that it be called chair. If it did, then like all languages would have the same signifier for chair or whatever, right? So there's nothing within an object that contains meaning on its own, right? It That meaning only makes sense in this greater kind of like, like I said, kind of closed loop system of language itself. And so the, the post-structuralist approach is, okay, we call this thing a chair because it's not a horse or a cat or anything like that. And that's how it's a system of negative relationships between objects in our world. And so you see this play out in the real world because, you know, every language has a different word for everything. Right. So that kind of, I think leads credence to this idea that there's no eternal form or there's no essence within an object that requires that it be called something specific. Okay. So there's kind of like a rel- there's a relativity versus like this certainty. And I think maybe to think of it too in the sense of like God, particularly like Christianity, right? So Christianity is saying, okay, Jesus, God is this universal signifier that exists outside of human experience and creation, et cetera. And through him, it imbues all objects with meaning. So what we're doing, so we're saying is this is, no, the reverse is actually true man created God in his, in man's image. And then everything sort of in this, like I said, I think closed loop or I don't know if there's a, I think that I understand now in relation to what I've learned about post-structuralism, because what it's it's happening here is, uh, it's, uh, defying the old structuralist, uh, model of like the transcendent, uh, everything coming from, like a god just being this thing that we made up to occupy the space of well this must have come from something greater down towards us okay exactly yeah that's a pretty good and i think really anything so that's a good thing to point out too is like this mat whatever master signifier you have that is guaranteeing like a set meaning and that's kind of like the old model of looking at the world right because whenever you, I mean, if you 
can even look at the history of language. Words change meaning all the time over the course of time, right? So meaning, because of this kind of arbitrary relationship between an object and what we call it, like there's no logical link. It's completely like whatever. There's no, you know what I mean? There's no way to connect them logically and specifically. Yeah, no, that's funny. Words are really malleable and there are like... um (laughs) <laughs> there's a really like weird impulse in like English teachers and people like that who are like, no, the, the dictionary is the authority on what words mean. And they're always arguing exactly. with their students who are a younger generation that are like, you know, it's the 1980s and you're going, nah, teach bad now means good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're fighting with you and go, no, it means bad. It means not good. You know? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So that's an actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really good model to look, to understand this from too is, Okay, so teacher tells you to go look up a word in a dictionary. You do, but what do you what do you encounter when you look in the dictionary? Just more words, and then you can look up those words, and you can look up those words, and on and on and on ad infinitum. But you're never gonna really you're just gonna circle that. You're never gonna find any like essence of meaning to build the system from. Yeah, at least not logically. So how do we then? How does it happen? How does it happen? <laughs> I don't know. Um, a lot of it is coming. So language is the discourse of the other. And this definitely plays into Lacan and what Lacan thinks about things. So whenever you're an infant, and we talk, you talked about needs and, and stuff like that earlier, right? So before, you're, before you learn how to speak language, you're very crudely like, crying or you're making sounds trying to communicate what your needs are but as you progress and once you become enmeshed in what Lacan would refer to as the symbolic order which is really language itself so all of language and meaning is kind of like being imposed on you from the outside you're being kind of constituted your subjectivity is being filled in you're kind of like this empty vessel to some degree that gets filled in with like language and and yeah that was a really mind-blowing observation i think the idea of the symbolic register it's something i don't think about very often i don't you know i wouldn't imagine most people do it's just that like you think of yourself as being uh i guess this is also the reason it's so mind-blowing to me is it's also uh it very much challenges your idea of your own self like autonomy and free will and all that shit when you think about the fact that you were a blank thing kind of uh to some extent and then you were born into a world that imposed upon you these things that have existed for longer than you have, like, you know, English language right. and uh, cultural values and, uh, you know, America and, uh, you know, you're born. Here's an iPad. Now I'm using it every day. It's my whole fucking life, you know. Um, so you are like a temporary visitor in a th- a, an eternal space that's going to outlast you. Uh, and it did heavily defines so much about the way you even think and uh, the little building blocks that you use to articulate you know these desires and stuff like that that's really interesting i really liked what you said about the yeah, yeah with the babies like a, a baby and a person with alzheimer's are the only people actually living in the real uh which right. because there's this way in which uh like the the signifiers uh symbols and words and stuff we use you know just d- effectively 
out and leave on the cutting room floor parts of the reality in order to just function or whatever that we are going to eternally miss. This made me think about something. Um, it made me think about psychedelics because um, this is like a, a, something... Well, that's a good, that's a great instinct you've got. There. Um, it maybe something about something that I'm gonna <laughs> fucking sum up in you know very rudimentary terms and probably get wrong, but the but the but the concept no, at no, play I, like I think this. is interesting, which is that um, psychedelics. Uh, I remember reading a thing or hearing a thing or something that the person was arguing, and I don't know how true this is because I'm not a fucking brain scientist and I have all this shit. But come with me on this hypothetical. <laughs> the argument they were making was that what um, like acid or mushrooms or something like that do when you take them is um, so your brain right is. Uh, you know, a fucking uh, spine with a little thing on top of it. And that inner part of your brain that we colloquially refer to as like the lizard brain is the oldest part of the brain, right? And so that's where all the really basic needs come from and the drives and stuff like that. All the primal stuff, the hunger, the fucking, you know, anger, whatever, whatever all that shit, right? And then the way the brain, the brain evolved was uh, all the outer layers were then sort of grown onto it. And so that's why at the front of our skull, we have this cerebral right. cortex that is, you know, responsible for all these more abstract things and decision-making and stuff that's like real in the conscious, right? And um, so the way that the uh, the argument went was that, um, or the mapping went, or whatever the fuck you want to call it, was that so your brain has all these primal lizard brain um, drives and urges and stuff like that. And it, uh, is perceiving through your eyeballs and your nervous system reality and, um, you know, taking in all that stuff and sending it towards the inner brain to, uh, you know, to interact with it so that it can get what it needs. But the outer brain serves as a filter that, uh, every time you look around or smell something or taste something or feel or whatever, um, there's like a million things within your field of vision, right? Happening all the time, but your outer brain filters all that stuff as a way of specializing and, and uh, zeroing in on, you just wouldn't be able to function if you were seeing everything in front of you at all times. So you have yeah, to be exactly. able to look at like your keyboard right. and go, that's the Y key and that's the U key instead of just like fucking all, seeing all the letters at the same time and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> so what psychedelics do is that they just ease up that filter a little bit. And so you're a little bit more able to live in the real while you're tripping, like not all the way, but you just get a little bit closer, yeah. and that's what's so novel about the experience of right. tripping, and that's why it's it's so incredible and mind blowing. Is because you're like you're you suddenly are uh, you just altered the focus a little bit, and you could see stuff that was there the whole time, but you couldn't actually see before. Yeah. Right. No, that's definitely good, and that kind of goes to also like this this idea of Lacan's, which is that the unconscious is structured like a language. So he's not saying that like there's a literal one-to-one, -one, like there's not a dictionary in your head that structures your unconscious, but your unconscious is using symbology, right? So it's using a system of symbols. And that's what he meant when he's saying that, that. and that kind of maps onto like that idea of the frontal cortex sort of processing and like interpreting these different, you know, inputs that we get from from the real or what have you. Yeah, um, the idea of the subconscious as uh, kind of just a, a thing that functions like a language is really interesting. I think that he was saying like um, 
there are like chains of signifiers kind of within the sea of your subconscious that, um, you know, you can see in like dreams and stuff like that and just like vague associations. And this is obviously where it gets, you know, kind of into the Freudian stuff. They talk about psychoanalysis and how like, uh, in a, a psychoanalytical session, somebody says, uh, my job is challenging. And then the psychoanalyst goes, that word, challenging, why'd you say it like that? And they go, well, you know, the challenger exploded when I was seven and it caused all this stress. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, that is like maybe a little bit of a leap to take in terms of like, well, this association means something. But the the concept of words themselves being... Um, you know, signifiers and representations of things and having multiple meanings and, uh, you know, uh, connecting with each other in this way, I think has some weight to it because, uh, you know, the, the human mind operates, you know, very like heavily on just association. Um, to, something I've kind of always believed about the creative oh, yeah. process is that at the bare at the essential level of the creative process, really anything can be broken down into just, this is like this. It's just a million, million little bricks of, you know, this thing is like this and this is like this and doesn't it remind you of this all being used to create, you know, a big, much big, more complex image. Anytime you paint a picture, you fucking direct a movie or whatever, you write a story. That's essentially what's going on. So I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I like it. I think, uh, Definitely an argument could be made that that's, uh, that is what's going on in our inner selves, I guess. So two things, one, that kind of relationship that you're talking about is, I, th I think would be considered metonymy, which is related to metaphor and like kind of this horizontal relationship of different metaphors for whatever object or like concept that you're trying to uh, communicate. But this also functions in, in desire too, because I've heard it described as like, okay, so in terms of sex, it's like if you're, you know, one con, you like you're kind of leaping from one conquest to the next horizontally, that's metonymy is okay. So this, this, this desire wasn't satisfied. I'll just, I'll sleep with someone else to try to satisfy that and on and on and on. So it's like kind of this continuing lateral jumping from object to object, object of desire. Uh, and what gets really interesting too is whenever capitalism, I think capitalism taps into this a lot, which maybe is what drew me to Lacan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he talks about the, like a child having unending demands, being aware that a way that kind of lays it bare when you look at it, uh, cause they have the need, the lizard brain thing. I need water within me. Uh, the desire, uh, which is, um, you know, like kind of the more abstract, uh, like wanting of a thing. And then there's, uh, uh, the demand, which is like the expression of it. And when I think he observes that the, you just have endless demands like that never really gets satiated. So why do you keep expressing these needs and desires? Um, uh, what am I getting at here? Uh, if it, it's going to be like a continuous, uh, see this does, this is reminding me of, uh, some fucking anti Oedipus shit where like, uh, yeah, this all like tells us, yeah, there's a, there's an unending lack 
I get, yeah, I think I was reading it in, in some of this yeah. watery, uh, uh, fucking Deleuze stuff about like the, uh, the unending lack and the, the, the lack and the desire itself being kind of something that exists more than the object. I'm getting, I'm kind of losing my bearings here. <laughs> it's easy to. Um, so I, I think that for Lacan and that kind of Oedipal stuff is Lacan is saying, and, and Freud as well is saying, okay, so since you're first exposed to the other through the parental relationship, the mother and the father and like, you know, suckling at the mother's breast and like that whole relationship between like your mother desiring the father and the father being the symbolic kind of phallus and, and so forth. Like that aspect is a fundamental concept of, or con fundamentally constitutive of your subjectivity. And so like how you're generated and anti what anti Oedipus is trying to do is say, okay, like, yeah, there is an Oedipal relationship, but it's not the central, like, it's not the central issue. What Deleuze and Guattari are also doing is saying, okay, lack, lack and desire, like, uh, desire is a productive thing rather than this kind of negative thing that Lacan sort of describes or goes to, which I don't think is necessarily like in, in direct conflict at least, you know, at a certain level, because I think that this idea of subjective lack is pretty, like, that feels pretty, I mean, I think you can just observe that in your own life so much. I mean, buyer's remorse, for example, is like a way that we always sort of will encounter what lack and what desire really yeah, are. Yeah, totally. Um, another thing, uh, just on the metonymy thing, something that just occurred to me that I think is kind of interesting and related is... Um, I uh, I have a very mild case of this thing called synesthesia that uh, you know I, it was kind of oh, a nice. pop psychology thing that uh, that uh, you know ca came out and uh, surfaced a few years ago and there were all these BuzzFeed quiz and find out if you're a fucking if you're a synesthete right um, synesthesia is this uh, tendency that people have barely consciously to associate things like numbers and letters like sets of information with like a color and then like um you know certain yeah. pitches and stuff like that with colors so like you know people that are synesthetes describe you know having your mind's eye open when you listen to music and having like certain colors evoked um and so when it first you know was a thing i think when it first left the pages of obscure psychological uh, texts and manuscripts and stuff like that and became a thing on the internet where that everyone asked each other, do you have this? Suddenly people realized this isn't that much of a phenomenon because it's very common. Like everyone kind of has some degree of this. And then like, you know, obviously there are people that have like an extreme degree of it. Like there's a cool documentary about this where like this guy who got hit in the head with a brick now has synesthesia to the level where he can like describe pie by imagining it as a landscape and shit. Okay, sure. Maybe that exists. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but mostly people just have what I have, which is, um, you know, like when I think about the letters of the alphabet or the months of the year, there are just kind of these feelings of colors. And when in order to like actually test this theory, what you do is you make like a list and you write down 
the letters of the alphabet and then you assign a color to each one. And then like a year later, after you've forgotten about this, you do it again. And then you check and see if they still match. And you're a synesthete if they all match or if most of them match or something. Um, it just implies that this is a thing, right? Um, this is something that um, this fucking uh, neuropsychologist Villainaya Ramachandran talked about. He was the guy who invented the mirror box for people who are amputees. Um, but uh, I, what's interesting about it is that all of this to say, um, it implies a link between uh, the sets of data that we have in our head and something that isn't even related or is it, right? Because here's the thing. All of this happened and uh, a bunch of people figured out that they all had the same colors mapped to each letter. Not everyone has it though. Like it's you gen in general and generally people map their own colors to their, their own numbers and their own months and stuff like that. But like, for example, I think with like either the months or the letters, a bunch of people who were all born around the same time realized that they had the same mappings. And then they all figured out that when they were kids, they all had the same alphabet book, which has multicolored like at letter a it's red and the next page is b it's green right and uh so they you know they kind of realized oh this is just associations that you make early on when you are building these maps in your head for the tools that you will then use from there on out in your life yeah okay so yeah, I see what uh, you're you know every, everything is based on association which i think lends some weight to this argument that um there are signifiers within our uh, subconscious that are um, are the, are the building blocks in the way that we think and perceive the world, even on a level uh, before we're even able to get it out our out of ourselves into words and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I had a good uh, so a friend of mine, Ryan Engley, he described or kind of points to the unconscious, like in this way, especially with the like the concept of dream. So a dream is something that only you experience in your head, but yet you still can't explain your own dreams. Yeah. Like that's, that's an interesting thing and it's on its own, right? It's like, it's something so personal to you and like you should right, If you think about it and from like the surface level, you should be able to understand what the fuck is going on in your own head. It's, it's you you know what I mean? But yet you still can't comprehend it. So I think that's a very strong argument or evidence for like this unconscious being kind of. Yeah. I mean, it is funny when you try to describe a dream, it's, you know, like sand falling through your fingers. As soon as you try to bring that (laughs) shit into, you know, the world that we operate in, which, which is, uh, you know, this space between us that we use the symbolic register and everything to, uh, transmit information. Um, dreams are also interesting because, so I guess to pose an argument for this, uh, you know, this chain of signifiers thing, um, you know, you never really think about it, but like in your dreams, you speak your language that you speak or people that are bilingual sometimes will describe having, uh, when they're, when they're speaking English more than they're speaking Spanish or something, their dreams are in Spanish and stuff like that. And like, Gravity still exists in your dreams for the most part. All these rules that are from like, uh, you know, the symbolic register and the imaginary register um, are still at play in your dreams, which means that if your dreams are indeed a window into your subconscious, then within there, um, those rules still somewhat apply or at least are are things that you use to make sense of, uh, you know, whatever the fuck's going on in there, I guess. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right. Let's see. So I think it's there's definitely an important distinction that we should kind of bring up as far as drive and con in contrast to desire. And this is something that I fucking struggle with so bad. <laughs> like I can't I can kind of do it, but I can't fully articulate it or really like explain it that well. Because both Lacan and Freud talk about the drives. And I think the drives for Freud are a lot more kind of straightforward. It's like, okay, you have this unconscious libido that, it, or like the death drive for Freud is more like you kind of generally think of the desire for annihilation or something like that. But that's not really exactly what Lacan is getting at. For Lacan, it's almost, I like to use the metaphor of like being in orbit. And this is kind of a good way to explain drive is... So you're like, you're kind of constantly falling towards the object, but you're never getting there. You're just kind of like circling this object. And it's kind of like a, a circular spiraling relationship always throughout your life as you're kind of circling that object. And that's what drive is, which is separate from desire. Desire is something that is more like horizontal and it's more in that kind of like metonomic thing where whether it be sex or let's say like you collect Funko Pops or something, right? It's like, okay, this one didn't satisfy my lack. Maybe this one will and so on and so on. So you're kind of moving more of a laterally hopping from object to object, whereas desire or not desire, but drive, you're never actually coming into contact with the object itself. Yeah. It's uh, you're, but even then like that shit's super confusing. You're like me. on a curve <laughs> that never approaches zero with it or something. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, that's what, that's what a uh, gravity or like not gravity, but being in orbit is like falling. You're constantly falling, but the rotation of like the earth means that you're never actually hitting the object. You're so, so you're kind of just, I think that's a good way. Oh to, like, visualize yeah. 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 Oh, that's fucking, that's freaky. Um, does this relate <laughs> to the big other? Am I getting that right? Hmm. I mean, drive I'm uh, remembering. I'm, I'm remembering Zizek shit that I watched where he talks about the yeah. Big Other, and um, I might be getting this wrong. There's one thing where he talks about Coca-Cola and how it makes you continually uh, thirsty while you drink it, even though you keep wanting it. But that sounds more like the desire thing. Yeah, that's definitely that's an example of the desire and the limit, and that's kind of a even that's kind of a challenging thing to really explain for me too because it's i've heard it described as okay so like if you had it's the limit like the limit is constitute constitutive because if you just had like unlimited coke like it wouldn't satisfy you but because there's this limit of the can that somehow creates a, a satisfaction oh, man. that's the <laughs> best way that i can articulate that one but even that that's another yeah example that, that but like, that's man. That's for it's real. That just made to, me think about drinking into. a six pack of beer as opposed to just like a big jug of beer. And I, I fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you uh, smoke, right? Uh, because that would be, if you smoke cigarettes, that's a yes, good example yes. too of, of desire no. and metonymy. Or no, wait, that's more death drive because you're like constantly doing it. No, um, but you know what? You're right though, because uh, I, I actually just kind of quit smoking, but uh, I mean, I smoked cigarettes for fucking ever and I always liked them more than vaping because vaping was, it didn't have a fucking end. 
Yeah, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a good fucking... Yeah. I like that a lot. But yeah, definitely. Uh, something about that limit is what gives you the enjoyment. Yeah. But I don't know how that maps on to this idea of like, you can't... Like, your lack can't be filled as well. That's what makes this shit so confusing is because it's so... It's so contradictory, right? Like everything is a contradiction. Like what what appears obvious to you isn't the thing that you want, right? Like you can't, you don't even know what you want or desire. It's something else. And that object, it's kind of like a stand-in. And you're sort of kind of like a junkie that's following that <laughs> that path of like, okay, this this time this object will satisfy my yeah, lack. You're uh, chasing the dragon with quite literally everything. Exactly. Um, so big other going back to that is that's something I don't fully kind of understand. Like I've heard it said that a lot of people argue that the big other doesn't exist, but I think the big other is sort of like the would be considered maybe like the rules and like laws and kind of cultural norms and, and things like that. Are kind of like the big other but it's somehow also not a real thing so it okay. gets really confusing yeah i was trying to understand the difference between that and the <laughs> the object petite or whatever the fuck the little object um but i think that's kind of where i started to get out of my range yeah now little object that the object petit is a little bit easier to figure out because i think i talked about how like your joke is maybe the ob is a good metaphor for object because it's sort of the thing that can is arbitrary in the relationship. So you're telling the joke to try to get the recognition and love from the other. So the joke itself is it's like the um, another metaphor would be like the suitcase in yeah, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. Right? So the suitcase is like the suitcase is arbitrary. Like it's what what the fuck ever. It's what's inside there that is the real, like, that's your desire. It's not just... So that's kind of how object ah functions as this packaging sort of... Right, okay, yeah. He also talked about um, this with uh, signifiers and signified in terms of there being a door with a red light bulb on top of it. Um, there Maybe this was in a lecture I listened to or something, but the, they were talking about how, like, the light bulb implies something, and so, you know, you... Uh, you don't desire the the door isn't what you desire. It's what's uh, it's being represented by the signifier, the light bulb. Obviously, this is about like the red light district or whatever. Um, so it's packaging with like a thing inside of it. I think. Yeah, it kind of let's see. Object A is also referred to as the object cause of desire. So it's not the object that you actually desire. It's the what causes your desire but i don't know how that directly maps onto kind of like that explanation i was giving you in terms of the joke like i that's a connection i quite don't quite fully understand how those two things link together how this thing is causing your desire as an object because really the lack is lack and desire are sort of synonymous um yeah the other thing he talks about that connects into the freudian stuff is uh like the object of your desire also having its own desire, which creates a loop where you like when you love someone, your d desire is to fulfill their desire or whatever. And that's, uh, yeah. 
but they're also a lacking being, so they don't even know what they want. So Lacan has, that's actually funny because Lacan's got a great aphorism about this, about love. Let me find, uh, it's like you, lo, love is giving something you don't have from, from to somebody who doesn't want it, <laughs> that, something like that. That describes stand-up comedy so well. <laughs> I don't know if I, I really like this, the idea of mapping on this like Oedipal thing to stand-up because like, uh, it's like, um. Because his his comparison of this, which maps onto the edible thing, is like when you're sucking on your mother's teat or whatever, and then you go look in the mirror and, and realize that you have autonomy as like the looking glass self or whatever, you start to uh, solve this problem Freudianly by either finding another object to then create this like closed loop with uh you know a woman instead of your mother or whatever or um or then all the other fucking neuroses like uh, finding a fetish object or uh or becoming the, <laughs> the freudian psychopath which just continues to desire their mother or whatever that one's really funny and becomes a uh crazy maniacal thing that doesn't understand the rules of society and crosses the street without uh, looking both ways or whatever. Um, but I, I guess th th that is funny to think about in terms of stand-up comedy because it's like, what is the audience? It's a, a stand-in for my mother. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so the, the quote is actually, love is giving something you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. And I think even that is like a good way to view comedy yeah. as well, right? Like you can probably... I definitely don't that, have yeah. it, and they definitely don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. Another concept that's kind of tied to this whole Lacanian, in terms of desire and like symbolic issues, is this idea of jouissance, which I th even think in the actual French is basically like coming, or like it's, it's kind of a lewd, a crude word for like, the orgasm or literally Love the, the French. <laughs> yeah. And so Lacan is like, he's of course being the sick fuck he is. He's kind of like playing with that, uh, for his idea of jouissance, which also gets, this also is something that I think gets super confusing too, because jouissance I've heard described as like unbearable pleasure. So like, I don't that, know, uh, when you were a kid, that, like your aunt or uncle or something, like tickle you, and you're like, ah, and like you're fucking like, you're so whatever. Um, you're reacting so strongly that it's like overwhelming. Unbearable pleasure is also kind of how I describe when I do stand up comedy. <laughs> 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 yeah. Nice. <laughs> Folks, you come to a show if that still exists anytime soon. Yeah, <laughs> right. <still>. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Um, something interesting too in this like a conception of jouissance which I think this kind of plays into like the whole MAGA or like troll I, um, formulation is jouissance being related to transgressive violations breaching boundaries breaking barriers this is so what I, th I think that kind of this is yeah that maps on to like der deriving satisfaction from being transgressive and like you know what i mean so there's like a whole different type of 
way of, like methods of trying to fulfill this this desire issue. Yeah, so this I, uh, this is something that jumped out at me and made me. It was really interesting to me because uh, like transgression is something that I think we're in a unique time in history for because it existed before the sort of great existential amnesia of the recent past and it's suddenly come back, right? So something Zizek talks about a lot is... um, and something we talk about on my podcast, which I'll plug right now, it's called Why You Mad? Uh, me and <laughs> Luisa Diaz talk about a lot of this sort of stuff, if you're uh, into this. Um, something she brought up a lot was, Zizek talked about this uh, idea of like um, transgressions up to and including rape being a thing that in like war uh, were allowed men in armies as a brief like reward for having risked their lives and uh served you know whatever the fuck cause or whatever so at the end of you know when you win the battle then everyone fucking rapes and pillages the uh the thing right and it suddenly exists within like an approved normalcy and um and then those fucking men go back to their society and they're, you know, button down wife and, a, you know, two kids and shit. And no one knows that you, uh, you know, skull fucked a dead body in Vietnam or whatever. Um, there's like this place for it. And it, um, it is like, uh, I guess, uh, describe, comparing it to coming is, is kind of interesting because it's like, you know, that, that biologically coming is something that like before the sort of sexual revolution and uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, the pill and stuff like that was something that you really had to, um, there was a scarcity to it. You're only allowed to do it certain times. Right. Um, then, yeah. I mean, honestly in like a time like the sixties after the pill comes out, we're like, we're not living like this. We're all kind of denying that these transgressions exist or we're just doing them and behind closed doors or something like that. And, uh, and then recently that we hit a breaking point with that shit where everything got really, really woke. And the people that had the desire within them to transgress threw their fucking fists in the air and went, I will take this no longer. This is natural. There is a thing within me. I need to transgress. So, you know, this, uh, like form of humor sort of, uh, started to become a thing that people connected over on the internet. The things you're extremely not supposed to say, you know, not just Dennis Leary. Oh, not just George Carlin. You're not supposed to be able to say these words on TV, but like extreme, you know, dark fucking edgy shit, um, started to happen on the internet. And then with MAGA people, with reactionary people, they started, started to embody like this, like movement, you know, even with like Trump as kind of a guy at the figurehead of it of like, yeah, you know, you're not unhuman for having this need to transgress within you. Um, you know, we're going to fight the people who who've like, who kept you from being able to do this. Um, I don't know. That's where I got with the Jouissance thing. Yeah. I think that's kind of interesting though, too, because, okay, let me back up and say that Lacan is very much unconsciously we'll say influenced by Hegel and that's kind of like a diet. Like if you're thinking about 
the like there's some logical or like some need is being fulfilled by this desire to transgress right and so to think dialectically you have to identify okay yes this is like on its surface at the this is very offensive and this is wrong right but what what purpose is that action serving right and looking at okay because it's probably a contradiction if that makes sense so like the the transgression like the actual whatever let's say they're saying the n-word or whatever you know prescribed word that you're not supposed to say like that saying that word is not the thing it's it's something else like there's that you know what i mean um it's an un there's an unconscious element to it what you're saying isn't the thing that you're trying to like that's not fulfilling the desire isn't saying yeah. the n-word that's not what gives yeah, you no, the it's not, it's not it's literally like this, the thing it's uh it's this yeah, yeah it's this like unarticulated unspoken other aspect to it which is transgression itself what are you getting out of that why does that feel a certain way why does it give you a rush yeah which is tied to desire yeah ultimately. totally to build on that too because you're giving the example of sex and i started to think like about masturbation <laughs> and how much sex like you think sex is okay it's the, like this natural drive right but there's something less there's something about the symbolic element that's more powerful or potent than just the physical thing because otherwise you know what i mean like yeah sure you can masturbate but do you get the same satisfaction as whenever you have actual sex with with someone else right so there's something going on like there's a symbolic element to sex and our enjoyment of sex that is beyond just the physical sensation because it's like you you know think about it and i think the example is in the notes i've given you know we don't need tasty food right, to right. live we don't need sex to live like these aren't really necessary needs right like the needs are extremely basic but we attach all this other symbolic shit on top of it and that's where we're deriving the enjoyment from a particular type of food or or sex or whatever the case may yeah be. yeah that's interesting because that's like also like a freud, a thing freud identified which is like the, your there's your sex drive like is inherently uh developed with the symbolic register type thing as a an eventual part that it will attach to and permanently be a piece of the drive because uh um you know because that's that that's con it's connected to the way that we like communicate and live constantly and stuff like that and understand the world so there aren't really people walking around who are um who are at least content to eat you know soybean paste and fuck once for procreation or whatever <laughs> even if people insist on that that probably that's probably not a true reflection of their like actual desires um in fact most people are yeah they're getting in actually th those people can have like a reverse thing where it's like the denial and that's the weird thing about this too is it can flip it's like that you can get enjoyment to or jouissance can be derived from pain or lack as well or you know what i mean yeah yeah so like you can derive enjoyment from your like incels is maybe a good <laughs> way to visualize that too or think about that because it's in a sense like they're enjoying there's an enjoyment it's unconscious right like they're saying okay we're upset because we we can't have sex 
but they're deriving enjoyment from their lack of sex. Like it's a weird pathology. Yeah, I mean, it is like it's uh, some kind of like perversion or something. And uh, yeah, they create some sort of loop where they're like um, stimulating themselves more by like uh, relieving themselves from the uh, torture of wanting and not being able to have it, I guess. They're enjo- but they enjoy the torture of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, another thing I was going to say about this in regards to sex is that speaking of uh, transgressions and everything, um, you know, there's a Louis C.K. joke. Uh, <laughs> I, every asterisk attached to this, I don't know, don't fucking cancel me. He was a, f- a smart guy and a monster. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Lacan yeah, was yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he <laughs> made an observation at one point that, um, an observation, a fucking joke, hit uh, a funny bit about how, like, if animals could see the way that we fuck, they would be horrified by it because he's describing the animal here as being the thing that just fucks for procreation. And then we do all the, you know, this crazy shit where you're like coming on someone's tits and stuff. And like from a purely biological, <laughs> right? it's all symbolic. Yeah, it is. It's all yeah. symbolic. It's that's language happening. That's like the, the, our minds, you know, uh, only functioning through, this uh you know comparing images and things like that and all this artistic shit and all this symbol uh symbolical shit uh being the reason that you know that we're not just fucking one time for procreation and uh when we do fuck it's like you know it's it's just all this ridiculous (laughs) like stuff happening because you're you're an artist you know (laughs) you're like on the physical level still a fucking artist what I think in preparation for the, po- I hadn't really thought about this for some reason is like I had, I had this silicon so talks about how like the monkey jacking off, right? The monkey is fully immersed in the real. Like he doesn't have a symbolic register to deal with. So he's directly in the real. The question that's interesting to me is does a monkey derive enjoyment from jacking off? Like, is there any pleasure attached to it because they don't have the symbolic realm to kind of understand that or experience. Now we're that. getting into the real heavy theory stuff. All right. <laughs> it's, it all goes back to Rogan and like gorilla dicks. No, I think that is really interesting. And that's why monkeys are so frustrating to think about because like, um, uh, I think one of the reasons that, that, uh, we might tend to look at that and think this monkey definitely is deriving shit is because like, so we understand the world through symbols, right? the, the most basic symbol that we understand the world through is like faces. Like that's like the first thing that a human child is able to kind of uh, uh, understand in the abstract. Like a very young child can look at a paper plate with two eyeballs on it and a line and go, oh, it's a fucking face, right? Um, you can't draw a car in that abstract of a uh, fucking way and then have a kid go, that's a car, right? Um, but monkeys look like us, you know? And they fucking smile when they do that shit. And so it looks like... This looks like a fucking person jacking off and laughing at you because they think it's funny and, you know, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. They may or may not. I mean, this this is also something that's really disturbing to think about and kind of blackpilled. But, um, you know, we have these relationships with like cats and dogs and stuff and they like they're pack animals and they or dogs are, you know, cats are these weird survivalist things that, uh, you know, are somewhat symbiotic with us also. And like, just like we project so much love onto them and so much insistence that they love us back because 
their mouths are shaped a certain way and they look like they're fucking smiling when they look at us, but we don't know, you know, they might not be, they might be in the real and we're not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about. I don't know if like this Lacanian shit holds up in a sense though too, because you'll have like animals do communicate when, I mean, monkeys, that was kind of a crude example because monkeys do kind of have like a rudimentary communication. And I'm thinking even dolphins and shit like that, Uh, birds too. Like they have a, it's a weird, like you can kind of half-ass communicate with birds. Like it's a weird, it's a weird shit that I don't know if it necessarily maps on to a lot of this Lacanian, but I mean, it's a good sort of rubric to kind of explain Lacan. Yeah. I mean, definitely like, uh, I don't, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not a good idea to draw a, 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 a really hard line between us and animals in terms of uh this yeah. sort of stuff because just because we have the you know hyperdrive version of it which with language and uh you know this presentness and the cerebral cortex and everything um we are still similar organisms to a lot of them in a lot of ways and a lot of the stuff comes from within parts of us that are not just specific to the consciousness i guess i'm thinking about this because i've been reading kropotkin and uh you know he argues that the mutual aid stuff is like observable in nature the same way that uh the darwinistic competition stuff is yeah that shit, I mean, even though I like pretty much am anarchist, I don't know if I buy like some of the Kropotkin like humanist stuff and like giving humans the essence of like being cooperative beings necessarily like inherently, but also like I don't necessarily think that humans are inherently greedy or selfish the way that like capitalists try to try to pin it on. I think it has more to do with like this this lack element. Yeah. Is far more I think important. where I'm at with Kropotkin, and I think this is probably what he was saying, but probably not what his like uh, legacy is, is that uh, so Darwin is inspiring all these people to create this model of uh, of you know humanity, which is entirely based on the violent competition, and he's countering that. And he's not saying, no, it's it's not that at all. And it's entirely this other thing, the cooperation. Uh, I think he's just, the point is, it's not entirely that. It's, uh, it's, right. a, it's yeah. a, a bunch of different things. And here's a really good counterexample of, you know, what might make another large percentage of it that's relevant, as relevant as the competition thing. Um, yeah. And I think it's just an important counterpoint because um, that Darwinist stuff, you know, inspired a lot of individualistic thinkers and a lot of bullshit Western, uh, you know, pro capitalist stuff that created a, like a big cultural hegemonic thing within our society, which is, you know, the pro the problem is the reason he's important in pointing all this stuff out is that the stuff that won the side of that argument that won is the only thing that is taught to you when you grow up here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like only paying attention to half of the dialectic. Yeah, totally. Damn, what was it? Oh, uh, so going back to this kind of like human nature element, what I think that... So what, when I think people talk about capitalism being human nature, it's more so it's about desire and lack because what capitalism is doing for, is it's operating... I think maybe that's even to back up, like that's something you need to understand is capitalism is operating at the unconscious 
right? First off, and it's not like, so there's fixing it isn't just like this A plus B equals C logical progression. Like there's a lot more um, nuance to it or there's a lot more complications because of all these contradictions in our desires and our expression of the desire. And so how this ties into capitalism specifically is we we're talking about earlier, right? So you're always jumping from object to object to try to fill that desire. So what capitalism does and to for capitalism to sustain itself is it's providing you with more th objects of desire. And that kind of ties to to Marx's idea of the commodity. Yeah, fetish. totally. There's a new version of the sneakers you like every six months and shit. And you have to yeah, have them. And so you, exactly. So that's where I think the idea of capitalism being natural or gets, gets muddied. I think maybe that relationship is somewhere where like, it's not so that capitalism is natural, but capitalism is taking advantage of sort of this, already existing structure of your subjective unconscious. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a material thing coming from without and then uh, filling in spaces that exist already. And capitalism's promise is I can, we can satisfy your desire through, through a, an exchange, but it can't. It's like it's making promises, it's cashing checks. Capitalism. Or writing checks that capitalism can't cash. Capitalism is writing <laughs> checks, it's, ca it's ass can't cash. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that's a really, I mean, I think that's what got me into Lacan first off is, oh shit, like, it's not just this very obvious, like, there's not a logical fucking thing that you can do to, like, break someone's brain and, and get them to be a communist. Like, there has, there's something else that you have to figure out like communism has to have some kind of libidinal energy to it. Like there has to be like a, a sexy like desire element to it for it to work. Because I think that is something where the, maybe the Soviet union is maybe a good example is it's kind of like whenever you're creating this sort of mono culture or this very like top down society, like there's, it's trying to restrict that libidinal energy and people are drawn to that libidinal drive of like sex and violence and whatever, right? So that's where I think you come into a sort of a challenge is to figure out a method or a, an idea of desire that is outside of capitalism. And what the fuck is that like? Like, what does how does desire function without this like kind of false scarcity? Yeah, well, I think uh, that's where propaganda comes into it, and that's where, uh, you know, we've seen different forms of propaganda. Um, the the top-down stuff during the Soviet Union was, uh, you know, probably uh, served a certain purpose, which is less libidinal. Um, it was, you know, more... Um, uh, join the fucking cause type shit. I mean, we also have that in capitalism. Whereas, like, I think what you're describing it and, and making it fucking like libidinal and sexy and cool is sort of the argument behind like all this dirtbag left shit over the last four years. Yeah, kind um, of. <laughs> you know, which I I subscribe to and agree with, and think, uh, yeah, you know, you're you're not going to fucking uh, solve this problem and convince people to become communists by being, uh, you know very off-putting and also by um 
denying people these fucking transgressions that I'm talking about that are being offered by the MAGA people, you know? Yeah. Uh, we're exactly. dead in the water if we don't find some form of that and recognize yeah. people's humanity and their need for transgression. I guess where some of the fucking dirtbag left loses me a little bit is that they just get so so stuck on that that they're like, well, now transgression is the fucking point and it's like all inexcusable right. and all this stuff. And uh, I'm more of a person who's like, you know, uh, let's do this sanely and with some sort of like precautions that it doesn't just become a reactionary fucking thing in and of itself. Yeah, that's the danger of it too. Because what is uh, fascism is like the aestheticization, aestheticization of politics. But I think, like, we have to, there has to be an aesthetic element to it. But how do you walk that razor's edge of like being aestheticized but not falling into fascism? I'm not sure <laughs> exactly how to. You know yeah, what I mean? because if it becomes all aesthetics, like in a sense, that's kind of what. MAGA is right. It's kind of yeah. The MAGA hat is this aestheticization of politics. yeah. Well, that's also what like reactionary shit is. Is uh you know a lot of these, a lot of reactionary politics are defined entirely by what you're not and whose side you're not on and who you hate and who you're collectively going you know fuck these people uh there are a lot of people that think like that that you know will shout at you all day and then you go okay well what do you believe in and they're like oh i don't fucking know you know yeah that's a good example too of how remember i was talking about that negative relationship within language too is like defining something by what you're not like i'm not i'm not an incel or i'm not a reactionary or you know not an mean? incel is a good double negative <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well let's see back to sort of i think we kind of covered quite a bit of of uh, the discussion that i wanted to go over except for like we didn't talk we talked a little bit about imaginary i think symbolic and real so i think we've and it discussed quite a bit. We already talked about objet A. Um, so maybe just kind of talking about those registers and then we can sort of maybe wrap up. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, like the the three registers are really interesting to me. Um, I thought it was my understanding that uh, he identifies um, the imaginary not by... So not, it's not imagination. It's not imaginary the way yeah. we understand it. It's image. It's a... There's yeah. a there's a register that we exist in that's all you know your physical imaging through your central nervous systems what you see smell uh, taste you know everything and then there's this register of the symbolic we just dis we discussed which is the eternal you know language and culture and stuff that you're born into that exists outside of you but then becomes you know sort of part of you in this thing you interact with and then uh, the real which is that space that a baby lives in before it is thrust into these other two registers, you know, by understanding it has physical autonomy and becoming uh, in, in the imaginary register and like learning language as a way of expressing itself and becoming in the symbolic register. The real is the most fascinating space to me. The real is the space that you get in when you, or you get closer to when you take psychedelics and uh, it's, uh, it's always there, but you just can't fucking get there because you're trapped within, um, a, a, a vessel that has, you know, a lens on it that it uses to both interpret things and, uh, a little, you know, other 
computer thing that it uses to express and communicate with everything around it. Yeah, I think to go back to the symbolic, I think the maybe something to bridge symbolic and real is is this concept that like of how the lack is essential to language because if everything like if you already had everything that you need, you wouldn't there wouldn't be a perp- a point to having language. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's a really trippy thought. <laughs> only because you it's only because you don't have anything and you have a need to communicate that language really has a utility in itself. That's an interesting thing that kind of links into the idea that we are um, a collective organism and social, you know, a social species and stuff that, and uh, it's completely imaginary, the idea that you can be a sovereign citizen that, you know, does not function. It's extremely unnatural when you cordon yourself off from other people and think, I'm going to sit here and think in this human language uh, and just, you know, (laughs) just do nothing and not interact with any other people and not rely on them in any way. I mean, it's it's guys. Yeah. When you understand it in these terms, it's kind of hilarious. The idea that people like, you know, go live in a compound and like read books all day, because even reading books, you're still on a level using this thing that is interacting with the thoughts of other people. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and it's all like the dead labor that constructed, like think about all the technology and like all the human labor that went into making that book a possibility and, thinking even further back, like all the culture and like the, the instances that created that person, like there's a whole train of like sort of causality from like the birth of the human species that everything is kind of tied into. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't have any of this shit, you know what I mean? And I think that's the dangerous thing that liberalism does is it's like, Oh no, you're this aton, you're just this like isolated thing that doesn't really have impacts on anything else rather than recognizing, like I try to make this argument to people all the time that I, and I think it's really effective for like reactionary people or people that aren't communists is that like, we're already producing, like everything is already social and communal already. Like what the fuck do you think going to work is? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like going to a job, you're fucking cooperating with people. No one's holding a gun to your head and forcing you to, to cooperate with those people. Like, yes, there's authority. Right. But like, ultimately it's, it's somewhat relatively voluntary and, you know, in scare quotes to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's also funny. Cause like, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point about the dead labor of, uh, you know, like literature and stuff is that you both can't be isolated from people on a spatial, like present timeline and you also are in a present way but you also can't isolate yourself from the rest of history like you like it or not you're we live in a society as they say and you also (laughs) like are part of history like you you can't claim all this independence when you live on the shoulders of you know all these dead giants or whatever the the whole reason you even exist is all these other people and to tie that back to lacan whenever you're getting ingratiated or enmeshed into the symbolic order like that's not emanating from you like you don't have an essence that says oh i'm jake flores i'm a i'm a comedian there's no like platonic jake flores out there right (laughs) it's only through like you're just generated as a product of history 
and like all of the different historical developments, whether they be technological, cultural, etc. Right. Like if any of that shit was different than like your subjectivity, your specific subjectivity wouldn't even exist. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, that's something Deleuze talks about a little bit with the uh, yeah, but, uh, if you're, like Spinoza. Have you heard the story of the guy who plays the trombone? I don't think he so. talks on one thing about like um, he's like hypothetically, let's say there's a guy goes into a music store. He uh, there's an attractive woman at the counter. She lives in, it's like in his neighborhood. It causes him to keep going back, try to come up with excuses to talk to this woman in this music <laughs> store. The rep and that's the repetition of like the drive. Yeah. He buys a trombone, right? Just to strike up conversation because he hears her, hears her listening to jazz music. This fucking doesn't play out, but he keeps the trombone. He start, gets really interested in the trombone and then he, you know, spends his life playing the fucking trombone, right? Um, and then, uh, so as, you know, I, I think that so one of the points he's trying to make in this is that that, <laughs> that thing, identity of me, a jazz musician now, didn't come from within. It didn't come from right. uh, you know this essence or whatever. It's a thing that like I interacted with in my world and then you know took part in. And uh, and then he talks a little bit from there about like the choice that you make uh, from there, whether you decide to play the trombone in the just exactly in the style of other people that have already played it, or do you do something new? Um, you know that that is a question that is. Uh, Asking, you know, do you subscribe to this, uh, yeah, this essence thing or, you know, are you fucking uh, sort of barreling forward into like the future realm or whatever? Um, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> no, I, th I think it's interesting. It brings up a couple of things for me and like one would be, so Deleuze is... Deleuze is very like inspired by Spinoza and Spinoza's whole vibe is like, there's only one substance and everything is ex an expression or mode of that, of that one thing. And so this whole subjectivity that we have is kind of, it's fake. It's not really real. It's kind of this illusion that we have and sort of the, it's like even that fucking like Bill Hicks quote about like somebody on acid realized that, you know, you're, you're, we're all, everything's one and we're just experiencing ourselves subjectively, subjectively. Yeah. Which I think is really fascinating. And I think for me, at least as kind of an atheist kind of guy, it's a little bit more comfort, comfort, uh, comforting to realize, okay, we're all kind of connected in the universe, which is one thing rather than like the sort of Christian notion is like, okay, you're separated from God. Right. There's that lack yeah. that's introduced rather than like a fullness. Yeah. It's really interesting, man. I mean, you can become so much of an atheist that you go all the way back around and you're kind of believe in God more than religious people because they believe in it. Yeah. Like you're saying in this, like this, this transcendent separate way that's uh, clearly just a fucking vestigial mode of social control. Absolutely. And I think what's, too so Deleuze is very much like a materialist but also a uh fuck what's the word I'm looking for um 
empiricist. Like he kind of bridges those two viewpoints, which I think is super interesting because that's kind of like, okay, so when I'm talking about empiricism is like saying that like your sensory data is, is inscribing everything onto you. So like there is no transcendental, it's all through sensory perception that we're able to do anything. So that's kind of the, like, I don't know, that's kind of a crude version of what, of what it would be, of what empiricism is. Yeah. So empiricism is like, okay, you're literally a straight up blank slate. They call it tabla rasa, uh-huh. blank slate. And experience writes your story, so to speak, which is sort of quasi-materialist in nature. Well, it's definitely, because, like, ultimately, it's definitely the, like arguing against Freud's inner world and, uh, and all, a lot of this transcendent, uh, you know, everything exists uh, before you. And the thing about the forms having be eternal yeah. and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hardcore materialist in the sense of like, maybe not so much in the sense of uh, when you think of like diamet- uh, dialectical materialism or historical materialism, but like straight up, like there are other versions or other, there's a more broader kind of philosophical movement of materialism than just whether it be like Hegel or Marx or what have you. And it's kind of saying that, okay, these linguistic structures, these like symbolic elements are also like, those can be looked at as like a material base from which everything springs. It's a lot more of a like deterministic approach that goes against the grain of like free will and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, where do we go from here? I don't know. I pretty much, uh, I think I've, I'm at the end of my notes as far as, uh, as far as Lacan goes, unless you have maybe some other questions or points or anything you wanted to no, I think I'm, bring up, or even if you wanted to talk about, you know, something else corollary. Um, I think I'm also getting pretty close to the end of, uh, everything I was able to scrape together for this. For sure. Well, uh, go ahead and plug your stuff, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm glad we finally got to do this. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I have, uh, <laughs> I used to be a touring comedian until, you know, <laughs> right. fucking hell broke loose. Um, someday I will do that again. I think I might release an <laughs> album at some point soon, so that'll be out. But uh, my main things right now are uh, my left comedy podcast, Pod Damn America, which is a joke about Pod Save America. Um, yeah, uh, that's my main gig right now. Uh, I need f- anyone and everyone to listen to it. And if they can, subscribe to our Patreon because that's what we're fucking living off of right now since we can't work outside. Um, and also, I have a podcast called Why You Mad, which is... Um, co- uh, so, Poddam is you know, a lot of different stuff, news and shit like that. Um, Why You Mad, if you're a theory head, uh, is like we talk about a lot of this sort of stuff on it. It's me and my friend Luisa Diaz, who's an anthropologist and also a comedy booker and also just gives an insane life. Um, So, yeah, we talk a lot about uh, the project of the show is basically, um, you know, this dialectical weird comparison thing between our lives in stand up comedy and whatever the fuck theory thing we're talking about. So, you know, uh, we maybe 
will somehow connect Michel Foucault and uh, Red Fox yelling at you that you have to wash your ass, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty fun show. Nice. Um, yeah. And I have a YouTube... Or monkeys jacking off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did some of that in this show, you know, talking about Louis C.K. <laughs> and shit. Um, yeah, and then I have another YouTube show I'm doing called Comedians uh, on Couches Getting Quarantined with my friend Kate Willett. And um, I think that's about it for now. I'm at Feral Jokes on everything. It's an anagram for my name, Jake Flores. As, uh yeah twitter instagram all that shit uh yeah so yep that's it i think hell yeah jake uh, pleasure to have you on i'm gonna plug my own once again patreon if you feel so inclined could definitely use the support who knows what my job uh future will look like since i work in customer service for a fucking <laughs> a fucking gig app so uh who knows how stable that will be since uh people can't perform gigs anymore oh, yeah. <laughs> largely speaking um but you can find me on patreon at patreon.com forward slash m-u-h-h follow the podcast feed on twitter at unconscious h-h and on instagram as well at unconscious h-h but this will be a huge shout out and thanks to Jake for coming on the show. Uh, but this is going to be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off. All right. The very rules of eating, of yeah. negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Okay. The world state of things through violence without object This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. And so on and so on.